I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. I want to make a few comments about Exodus, and then I want to go to Joshua, the book of Joshua. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 16. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and you have not let me know whom you will send to help me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. That is, don't let us go in the land. If you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. Now, here's verse 16. Now, there's a whole lot here. There's more than we will get out of it this morning. A lot of this will have to come as God begins to show you things. This is quite a verse of Scripture, and this is going to be the subject of our message today. And the title of the message is, A Challenge of Separation. The Challenge of Separation. Verse 16, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How will it be known that God's people have found grace in his sight? Is it not that you go with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. I wonder if that's the reason why a lot of people who once did well because of some difficult choices they made early in their life to line up with the Lord and get rid of some stuff in their life that they didn't know was bad, but now they do. God showed them things, and so they made a lot of adjustments. And God really blessed their life. He blessed everything that they did. And I wonder if through the years we've kind of learned to tolerate some of that stuff again and kind of give in to some of those things and quit fighting against some of those things so much. And we allow things that used to be out of our life to kind of creep back in our life. And I wonder if that limits grace. Now, grace is favor. There's nothing you could have better in your life, whoever you are, than to have God favor you, to have God single you out for his personal favor, to keep you, protect you, bless you, guide you, keep you, instruct you, show you. Nothing in this life, if you ever experience that, can be greater than that. Grace is just a word to a lot of people who've never really experienced the presence of God in their life and him putting them over in life and guiding, keeping, protecting. So they don't really know what they're missing when you talk about you need grace. Well, they don't know what that is. They've never been in that. But if you've ever experienced it, if you've ever had a walk with the Lord or if you're walking with the Lord and things are so different than they used to be, things have really changed from the way they used to be. Like the song says, life is worth living now. A lot of the problems are beginning to dissolve. That's grace. That's God giving you favor and blessing you. And he said, it is because of that that we are separated. 
Separated from what? Well, he said here, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Well, would this verse imply that God does not go with all the people that are on the face of the earth? That God is not the God of all the people on the face of the earth? But to those who want him to be their God, if they are willing to be separated from everybody else, they will have that special presence of God with them. Doesn't the New Testament tell us too that so shall they be my people and I will be their God on the condition of my people doing something? When he said, come out from among them and be you separate, he said, on the condition of that, I will be your God, you shall be my people, which interpreted in Exodus 33:16 means that you will find grace and favor from God when you begin to align yourself up so that God is the focus of your life. You want to please him and not the world. Now, through the years, in my experience, separation has never been a happy message for people. It's too legalistic. Because, you know, my duty as a preacher, and your duty as a reader of Scripture, is to recognize that there are things in your life that are not good for you. There are things that in the world out here that if they can get into your life, they're not good for you. That they will spoil you. Or that they will rob you. Or that there really is a devil who goes about like a roaring lion looking for people he can devour. And he does that through enticements and temptations and allurements by getting you to think about things that you walked away from. But, you know, was it really that bad? Aren't you overdoing it just a little bit? Aren't we just getting a little bit legalistic and too far to the whatever side? Is God all of that narrow? And those kind of enticing words begin to confront people who are no longer satisfied or paying attention to just a walk with the Lord, but they want to have more liberties and more freedoms to be more like their neighbors or other people and maybe quit being talked about so much or persecuted so much. And maybe we just give in a little bit and relax a little bit. Maybe we could win more people to the Lord. Yeah, maybe that work. Maybe we could win more people to the Lord if we just ease up a little bit. Do you think the devil would ever do that? Would he ever do that to people? Would he ever entice people like that? Hath God said, is that what he meant? Well, how do you know you're not being overdone with this? Maybe the preacher is just, uh, you know, legalistic and so forth. But separation is often viewed as unloving, harsh, legalistic. But the point of it is the content of separation, the whole point about separation is that there are things in this world that God says will contaminate you or pollute you and make you undesirable. Jeremiah used the word, make you vain, so that God can no longer use you because you have reinterpreted life on your terms and you're doing it your way, and surely God must accept that because your heart's good. Separation. Paul said in Colossians, he said, I warn everybody I meet. What does he warn them about? Things that are going to happen. Things that can snare you. What's the purpose of pointing out that? So you can avoid it, right? That if you're doing things in your life or you're letting things in your life exist and they're not good, then you should get rid of those things and you're warned to. 
It's all about separation. Be you separate. We don't like that because when you're separated and people begin to notice that you're not doing what you used to do, they're uncomfortable around you. They hear you. They watch you pray over your food. They don't do that, and so you make them uncomfortable. You used to act like them and talk like they talk. I was with some old classmates the other night, back from 50 years ago. They have changed a bit. And I was reminded, driving home, thinking about this and that. You know, were it not for God, I would be like that. But I wouldn't know I was wrong. I would have the philosophy of this world that says, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I mean, after all, who's perfect? And I would use those words they use and talk like they talk and think like they think, and I'd be doomed. But God, when he saves a man and brings us to himself, God sends messengers into our life or a message from it's a book you read, a radio broadcast, a conversation, or a sermon. And you begin to hear things that God wants you to get away from, avoid, come out from among this stuff, whatever it might be. It could be a lot of different things. But God wants us to come out and be separate because the things that he wants you to come away from are the things that will pollute you, contaminate you, and cause you to be judged. God is righteous. He has to reach a righteous verdict against sin. He doesn't want to judge you. So he says, don't do this. Come away from it. Let go of that. Give that up. Crucify that. Don't let that be in your life. Because if you do, you have to judge it. Now turn to Joshua. Joshua chapter 9, if you will. Joshua 9 and verse 1. Now the Israelites, the 40 years of wandering in the desert are up. It's time now for God to fulfill his promise to his people by taking them into the politically incorrect promised land. Did you all get that? I am bound for the promise. Oh, I can't sing that anymore. That's politically incorrect. It might offend Muslims or something. Well, it is the promised land. It is the promised land. And he said, I'm giving you the land. I'm not giving you the land because you've earned it or you deserve it. You're stiff-necked people. But I promised it to Abraham and his seed. I'm going to take you in because of my word. Just like God brought Israel back today, this day, from all the world. He put hooks in their jaws and he's brought them back to Israel, as many as they can get to come back. But he's not bringing them back because they're righteous, but because for his name's sake, he is fulfilling his word. And he's bringing back people that don't even believe in God for the most part. They will. A few of the ones that are left will. But God honors his word. He honors his name. So he's taking them into Canaan's fair and happy land. But Canaan's fair and happy land is full of bad people. Really bad people. Vulgar, nasty, ornery, abominable, bad people. But God has blessed them in the sense that they have great gardens. Remember the pomegranates that that the spies brought back and the grapes and the fruitfulness of the land. He'd blessed these heathen while they're in the land and their gardens and the wells they had dug. And God told his people, you're going into a land that's already prepared for. You don't have to dig any wells. The fields are already plowed and planted. I'm going to bless you in this land. But now here's the deal. When you go into this land, now here's a warning. You're going to have to get rid of everybody in the land. All of them. 
Men, women, and children. You can let nobody remain. So when you go in, you're going to find that there are people everywhere. There are clans of people all over Canaan. You have the Canaanites who were by the sea, moreover on the seashore. That was where the Canaanites lived. And all the other little villages and towns, and, and these were all little clans. They were Havites and Hittites and Jebusites, Gergesites, all kinds of ites and icks and ticks. These were just clan names. But mostly they were all Amorites, but they had different names for their clans. The first battle they fought was Jericho. You all know the story of Jericho walking around blowing those horns, and then on the seventh day, walking seven times, and the walls fell down flat. Well, the message about these Jewish people has spread a fearfulness upon all the land. They'd already heard about before they got across the Jordan how they defeated the two kings in the south down there, one named Og and one named Sihon, and how they had defeated them with the mighty victory. And so the people in the land were thinking, whoa, what are we going to do? Well, verse 1 and verse 2 to begin with. Now, this is a story about God's people obtaining their inheritance but on the condition, with God's help, on the condition that they live in such a way that God was willing to help them. Are you with me? On the condition that they do it God's way, and if so, God would be willing to help them. Now, without God's help, they could not do this, and actually, in the end, they didn't. But here's the way it begins. And it came to pass... When all the kings which are on this side of Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in the coasts and the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Pezzarite, the Havite, the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. They all agreed these people are going to run us out of our land. They're going to destroy us like we heard. They just utterly destroyed these other two kings, utterly destroyed them. They left none alive, nobody. They annihilated the whole village, all the people. Now they're coming into our land, they would say, and they're going to take us over. So we must get together in one accord. There must be unison here. We've got to fight against Joshua and these people. Now, in the land of Canaan, about five and a half miles from Jerusalem, I'm sure I've driven past there, probably a restaurant there now, was a place called Gibeon. Today it has some other name. I think it's called El Jib today, but it was called Gibeon. And the Gibeonites who lived there were strong people. They were hill people. There was a mountainous area there, and they were hill people, and they were strong but they were fearful of these Jewish people, of the Israelis. So here's what happens. Verse 3. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what he had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work, sounds like Willie, doesn't it? But it's craftily. They did work with cunning. And went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their donkeys and wine bottles and rent and bound and torn and bound and old shoes and clotted upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. 
And they went to Joshua and to the camp at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was just beside, just maybe a mile away from Jericho. And they went to Gilgal, that's where Joshua was at the camp. And he said unto them, unto the men of Israel, we come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Havites, perhaps you dwell among us. How shall we make a league with you? We can't have anything to do with you people. That sounds unloving today because that's politically incorrect today. If you want the blessing of God, you do it God's way. God said, remove them all. Not most of them. Remove them all. Well, how can we make a league with you? Verse 8. And they said unto Joshua, we are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, who are you and where are you coming from? They said unto him, we come from a very far country. Thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Whereupon our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke unto us, saying, Take victuals or food with you for your journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make a league with us. Look, this is our bread that we took for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we came forth to go unto you. But now behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which were filled were new and behold, they be torn. And these are garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. And the Bible says in verse 14, and the men took of their food and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Now we'll stop there for a minute and then we'll come back. Now what's wrong with all of this? Is there anything wrong with this? Now see, we say there is, but now do you really believe there is? I mean, here came people. They're poor and they're troubled people. They're scared. They've heard about the power of these people. And they've come from a very long journey, and they're just wore out, and they said, we want to be your servants because we know nobody can stop you all. Your God with you can defeat anybody. We just want to be your servants, that you'll make a league or a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said, how do we know where you're from? I said, well, you know, look how far we came. We were certainly not around here close. We couldn't be this wore out if we lived down the road. You ever heard of deception? Being deceived? Happens all the time, doesn't it? You play like you're something that you're not. You act sincere when you're not. Or you act intelligent when you're not. And you try to convince people whatever you have to do to, to make yourself out to be something that you're not in order to persuade people or to get an advantage of people. I think preachers do that all the time. So here they are. They're all dressed up like this. And the Bible said in verse 14, and the men took of their victuals or their food. Now, whether that means the Jewish people took of their food and gave to them because they don't want to eat that old moldy bread they had, but they had a meal with them. Now, as a custom, enemies didn't sit down and eat meals together. If they had been enemies, they sat down and have a meal together as a forming a friendship. 
And they often made a covenant of salt because of what salt does. Salt is a preservative and salt keeps the forces of rot from taking over because it's of the nature of salt. They would sprinkle salt between them. One would throw salt one, throw salt at the other. Not in his eyes, but probably at his lap or something. And they would have salt between them. And they made a salt covenant, which is an enduring covenant. And next week we'll talk about this more. But once this covenant is made, it cannot be broken under any circumstances. If you do, the judgment of God will be upon you. So they didn't even ask counsel of the Lord. Now, how would they ask counsel of the Lord? You know, a lot of times you read the Bible with these people, Joshua, for example. Should we go up? And the scripture would say, and the Lord said, go up. You ever wonder how did the Lord say go up? Was it a voice? Was it a sure impression? How did God speak? David would say, Lord, shall I do this? And the Lord said, you shall. Or the Lord would say, this is what I want you to do. And then he would go tell the people, this is what we're going to do, like Jericho. How did God talk to them? They always knew what to do. This is a part of God's favor. This goes with the package. When you're living the way God wants you to live, and you're eliminating from your life things that God must judge, and you live as though I want to be right with God, I think that you have a tendency to know the right thing to do without actually hearing a voice or having a phone call from some unknown prophet in Siberia or something. But there's a lot of ways you can find out things that you can read the scripture. A lot of people call into prayer lines or people call for prayer, ask for a lot of things without ever consulting the scripture first. Isn't this the word of God? Isn't the Bible the word of God? Does he not speak through his word? When we read his word, is it not him speaking? We read it with our mouth, but we can hear it in our mind. Could not God impress upon you the right thing to do in such a way you're just sure of it? These people didn't even take time to consult anybody. They went by the appearance of things. Well, look, they're sincere. Look, he, he, he's got this wonderful, pious face. He's got to be sincere. And look, their old clothes are wore out. The poor souls. We can't harm people like this. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. Is there such a thing in the New Testament as angels of light? The ministers of the devil, those whose design is evil and you're ruined, because there's a lot of this in Christendom, whose words, whose message, whose technique, whose ways, whose goal is to turn you away from God, using Scripture. They're called angels of light. Paul said, think it not you know, a great thing if his ministers be transformed into angels of light. We were warned in 2 Corinthians 2, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Just because something looks good or something sounds good doesn't mean it is good. You remember Deuteronomy 13, that the prophet or the dreamer of dreams comes along and he says something. I had a dream and the dream comes to pass. Just like he said, that doesn't mean he's a prophet because the devil can do this. Because his message was, 
to turn away from the way of God to this new way. I mean, I'm surely the valid deal. I mean, I couldn't do this without God, but here's what God says we ought to do now. We ought to live like this. And the Bible says God will be testing us. He will allow us to be confronted with falsehood so you can make a stand, so you can separate yourself from stuff and not be gullible or give in to things. I'd rather be overly cautious than overly gullible. I'd rather be the one sitting in the back of the room after three months saying, well, because a lot of ways I'm like that. I have seen more deception than all of you have. I've known a lot of them. I've been with a lot of them when their churches have been on program with a lot of people. One time in a place, they were talking about a deal and making money, and then they announced this guy to come up and speak, and he got up out of his chair and went up there, praise God, hallelujah. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I doing up here? I did. What am I doing up here? I didn't want to be up here. I tried to hide in the back of the room, and the guy caught me back there behind a post told me to come up front. Just some things you're not too sure of. How much you should support somebody or some something. They show you a little picture of a little kid, you know, a little orphan somewhere. Of course your heart goes out to the little people. They don't have it and you do. And then you get this story. And you don't even know if there is such a kid or one case I knew a preacher took somebody else's presentation, put his name on the picture of the orphanage Got a lot of money until he got caught. And people gave because of the goodness of people's hearts. But it wasn't good seed. You know, it was not good. There's so much deception. I don't mean to make anybody pessimistic either. But I sure don't want you to be gullible. I don't have a lot of speakers come by here because I'm not sure about most of them. And even the ones I am sure of, I keep an eye on them too. I'm serious. I mean that. I think, well, what are you saying now? Because I've seen people change. I've seen people give convictions up in order that they might have some of the stuff the world used to have. We walked away from stuff a long time ago. We were blessed. And you go back to stuff. And that keen presence of God no longer in your life and grace isn't flowing like it used to. Boy, that ought to tell you something is wrong. I hope it does. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. These Israelites were beguiled. The words they heard from these poor people were enticing words. We are just poor, oh, traveling people. We don't have anything to eat but old moldy bread. Will you just have mercy on us? What could be wrong with having mercy on somebody? Would there ever be a time that God say no? Remember the time the prophet, we read this not too long ago. The prophet Jehu came out to meet Jehoshaphat, one of the good kings. And he said, should you love those that hate the Lord? He said, Jehoshaphat, wait a minute, time out. You think it's right for you to go help like Ahab? He was a bad man. Do you think it's right for you to help people that hate the Lord? You're advancing evil. You're not advancing good. And because you did, things won't turn out as well for you as they should have. Because when you begin to back up and you begin to go astray and you begin to give in your conviction, well, I'm a king now. I've got a lot of money. I can help you a while. You start doing stuff like that. 
that grace begins to be restricted in your life. The well-being begins to be restricted. Oh, you exist and you get by and you're just making it, but as he said, I will give you rest. You don't have that rest anymore. Paul said you can be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the sly of men, by cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There's never been a time in all of history that deceivers have not sought out churches or church people to deceive them, to mislead them, because the devil's goal is to kill and to steal and destroy. We're told in the last days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. They shall turn away their ears from the faith. They'll turn aside to fables. It's an easier way today than it used to be because man is devising some easy way that's a lot of fun. And you can dress real weird today and act real weird, and it's okay, man. It's okay. There was a time you would never tolerate that because you've got to be different from that. But today, oh, they're mingling with this world. It's a mingling spirit. Hey, I'm cool. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm in the community. I'm a good guy. I'm a Christian. That's a good thing. And, and I'm no different from you. I go the same places you go, use the same language, watch the same trash, dress the same way. There's no difference among us. Where's the separation? At what point, I'm asking you all here, at what point are we to be different from the world out there? Because remember what God said, the condition, separation has to do with influences that contaminate us, things that God has to judge, things that keep us from growing, things that keep us from overcoming. And the New Testament warns us, we are warned time and time again. Listen at this one in 2 Thessalonians 2. He said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's not going to stop. It's out there. I think I can stand here this morning in this century, the last Sunday of this month, I'm trying to be dramatic and say this, I have seen a decline in way too many people spiritually. And I think the decline is because of the influence of the ways of the world. I think it creeps back in. I think it makes its way and it comes in, it comes back. Paul said we gotta put on the whole armor of God for one reason, that we may stand against the wiles of the devil the schemes and the devices and his ways. You know why people don't heed that? You know why people don't heed separation today? Oh, that ain't going to happen to me. That ain't going to happen to me. That's what that frog said when he got in a nice cool water and didn't know the stove was turned up. Oh, that ain't going to happen to me until it was too late. And one day he realized he was losing the battles of life. He was being overcome. Is being defeated, being tormented. Look at verse 14 again. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel in the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant or a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. Again, that's next week. What did they do? 
They let these people come into the land. They're already in the land. They deceived these people. They snared these people with their confession, and now they're safe. What was God's problem with people in Canaan? Well, they were bad. Some of the things you read about them and the practices they did, that, like in Leviticus 21, when God warns his people about the evil practices of the Canaanites, not only their religious activity, which was sexual in orientation, but some of the vile stuff that they did and promoted with their little gods. God said, the land is polluted. The land is abominable. And when I send you into this land, here's what I want you to see. Now, follow me in a little journey here, a brief journey. Go back to Exodus and go to chapter 23. Because this is what God said you're going to do. Exodus 23. Now, remember, this is God speaking. Exodus 23, 32. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, or with their gods. He's talking about the inhabitants of the land. They haven't gone in yet, but you're going in. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Well, they just did while ago. They shall not dwell in thy land. Hmm. Thy land. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. It's bad, isn't it? And here's the deal. These people can influence you far more than you're aware of how they can influence you. That unsaved boyfriend, that unsaved girlfriend, that whatever thing you shouldn't be involved in, you say, oh, I'm all right. I'm trying to win them to the Lord. You go ahead. But you're deceived. Because you should never have gotten into that situation in the first place. God wants you to come out and be separate. He said, now, when you go in this land, don't make a covenant with these people. Make no peace with them, or they will snare you. Is that harsh? Well, a lot of Christians think it's harsh. I guarantee you today there's such a liberal vein in Christianity today that they can't accept this. We can't just go into somebody's land and kill them all. What's wrong with you murder mongers? I didn't write it. Numbers chapter 33 and go towards the end of that chapter, 33, verse 51. Speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, when you're passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures. Uh-oh. Destroy all their pictures. Destroy all their molten images. What, they got gold on them. And quite pluck down all their high places. And you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein. For I have given you the land to possess it. And you shall divide the land by inheritance and so forth in verse 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land, that means distress you in the land wherein you dwell. Oh, yeah, you're in the promised land, but you're not enjoying it the way you could have and the way you should. Because the people who let remain, it's like that verse, a little leaven will eventually leaven the whole lump. 
Well, we eliminated most of them here. No, they didn't. They conquered major cities. But you read the first chapter of Judges, and you'll see that most of these tribes, not all of them, but most of these tribes could not and did not defeat all the people in their inherited land. Benjamin, for example, was where Gibeon was. That's a part of Jerusalem. Today, they have a small piece of land, but they didn't destroy all the people in that land. They couldn't get rid of the Jebusites. They couldn't get rid of all the Canaanites. They couldn't get rid of all the Amorites in the north. They let them remain, and the Bible says these people eventually polluted them. They drew their sons into marriages with their daughters, and their daughters married their sons. They began to worship their idols. It seemed to be innocent. We're not dying because of it. Nobody's invading us. It must be just an innocent thing. I mean, I know what I believe. And everything was going sour, but he said. Moreover, verse 56, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Would God do that to his people? When? When they have frustrated the grace of God. When God offers us this morning his kindness, his goodness, his protection, his safekeeping, all the promises that he has made that he watches over to perform, when he promises us all of these things on the condition that you live as my people should live, and we don't live the way we should live, these things don't happen. Eventually, we will reject the message because I don't see any evidence of it. I've never seen anybody healed. I've never seen a miracle. And you begin to turn away from these things. It's not God's problem. It's our problem. There's so much out there that is designed to destroy us, to weaken us, and to turn us away from the right way that God wants us to go. Deuteronomy 7. Go to the next book over. Deuteronomy 7. And look at verses 1 and 2. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Pezzarites, Havites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, and thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, thou shalt make no covenant with them. And what's the end of it say? Or show mercy to them. Could you do that? Now, I would know we're New Testament Christians and things have changed, but God didn't put all this in the Bible for us to ignore it and say it doesn't work today. There's something here for us to see. The principles never change. The principle is to me an abiding truth. And when God says, if you will separate yourself from all the world, you will find my presence with you and grace that goes with me will go with you. But if you won't do that, then you'll struggle like everybody else when you shouldn't. And if you will not walk the way you should walk, then you won't find that Christianity is what you've heard it should be. In the same book of Deuteronomy, look in chapter 20. Chapter 20 and verse 16. But of the cities of these people which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, whew, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. What would that mean? Well, it means what it says. Did he say when God gives you these cities, you're to kill everybody and everything in them? Amen. Verse 17, but thou shalt utterly destroy them. That's what utterly means, everything. Namely, the Hittites, the Amorites, and so forth. 
as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do all their abominations which they have done unto their gods, so should you sin against the Lord your God. If you don't separate yourself from sinful things, sinful things will eventually attach themselves to you. If you do not get away from these things, they'll get a hold of you. Go over to Joshua again. Look at what Joshua did. Look at chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 30, several verses here, just single verses. And the Lord delivered it also, and the king thereof, into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword. And all the souls that were therein, he let none remain in it. He did unto the king thereof as he did unto the king of Jericho. Nobody lived. Nobody survived. They killed everybody in the city. And verse 35. And they took it on that day and smote it with the edge of the sword. And all the souls that were therein, he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. And then in verse 37, and he took it and smote it with the edge of the sword and the king thereof and all the cities therein and all the souls that were therein, he let none remain according to all that he had done unto Eglon. Verse 39, and he took it and the king thereof and all the cities thereof and they smote them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the souls that were therein, he left none remaining. Verse 40, so Joshua smote all the country of the hills and of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs. And all their kings he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed. And verse 42, and all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because, because why? Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Did he fight for them in verse 11? Same chapter. Whose side was God's on? And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were going down to Bethoron that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them. Whose side was God on? You hear all the time people, well, that's not right. You can't say that God is for us and not for them. I'll tell you one thing, God is for me. He's on my side. Well, isn't that a little arrogant? I didn't write this. Psalm 57 said that God is for me. He's not against me. He said he will be with me as long as I'm for him. He will be with me in that grace too as long as I am with him. As long as I am with him, he is with me. If I allow other things into my life that is against him, then he will not be there like he was. I will begin to lose some battles in my life. Frustration will begin to set in. Rest and peace will go. I'll exist murmuring and complaining and not happy, critical, compromising, and so forth. But God was with these people. But again, you read in Judges, the next book over, the very first chapter of Judges, time and time again, as these tribes came into their allotted areas, you know, Asher and Dan and Gad and Naphtali and Issachar and, and Judah and Simeon and Reuben, all of them, when they got their land, it was their job. Now that the major cities were dealt with and the presence of Israel had been known and God had favored them, now you in your own areas must finish off the work. And they didn't. And they let all these people remain. And they become as 
pricks in their eyes and swords in their sides. They became like thorns in their flesh. Harassing. That's what Paul prayed against. It's harassment. And that's what happens to a lot of people. Too many people. And I'm not talking about you, but if it applies to me or you, we should admit it. But we allow a lot of things to harass us that we should be overcoming. I don't know what specifically to say, but a lot of things that harass people should be overcome. Why was God had such harsh judgment against the land? Do you think God has harsh judgments against the world? I mean, I'm talking about today now, right now as I'm speaking here. Does God Almighty have similar feelings about the world? If you're a friend of the world, you're what? You're an enemy of God. Now, if we don't define what is meant by the world, then we might be enemies of God through ignorance. So we have to teach on that. We need to personally study about that. We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to look at ourselves. Or as you said last week, we need to examine ourselves. Am I or not? Do I want to be blessed or do I want to walk in a curse? Do I want God on my side or do I want God not even trying to help me? We have to understand that God hates sin. He's against sin. Leviticus chapter 22. One of those verses says the land is defiled. The land is defiled. Now, what does that mean? The land is polluted. What pollutes a land? What defiles a land? Can you say sin? There are all forms, all kinds of forms of sin. Some sins are called gross, wicked and evil beyond like 1 Corinthians 5, there's never such a sin been heard of as that one in 1 Corinthians 5. And people that do the wrong things and act the wrong way, Deuteronomy 9, maybe we should go to that one next. A little bit to your right there, not far. And look at verse 4. Speak not in your heart that God has brought me into this land because of my righteousness to possess the land, but God's bringing me into this land because of the wickedness of these nations that he is going to assist us in driving out from before us. Verse 5, not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart did you go in to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God does drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which he swore unto our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, the Lord thy God giveth thee not this land to possess it for thy righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. God knows that. Even the last chapter of Joshua, at the end of his life, when it's time for him to die, he says, you're stiff-necked people, and you will turn away from God. It's a prophetic word, but he knew that, and it's been true. It has been true in the church, in the little place I've stood in it, the little brief time I've been in it. I've seen this true way, way too many times. People that start well, that meant well, Great intentions, good testimony, strong, secure, and steadfast. Now we look back 20, 30 years at some of these folks. I still know a lot of them. They have no keen interest anymore. They're not excited anymore. And you look at their life, and I don't mean to be picky, but God shows you things. And you look at people's lives carefully, and you see a lot of influences that come into their life. A new place to go, the country club, and the memberships and all the latest places where you can talk to the heathen and hanging out and all that kind of stuff. 
You look at all the things that people do and people say, and you think, man, oh, man, what has happened here? Why has all these things begun to happen to us? It's because we have not, as he said in Psalm 106, we did not destroy those things that corrupted us before, but we have gone back and mingled with them, and we've become defiled. Shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I will agree with all of you. There have been a lot of times in my life I've had to make some difficult decisions, especially when my youngsters were growing up, about what I could allow them to do, what I've allowed them not to do. Didn't always do well, but there was a time or two I said, I cannot let you go to a certain school and be on a certain team because of the influence of your teammates, which you will commit yourself to. Teammates are kind of in a little group. I mean, everybody works together. We go to places together. We do things together. And we together. And I don't want you to have as companions in your life people like that. I'm not looking at those kids and say they're ugly, vile people because some of them are pretty nice. They're very cultured and have social skills. I'm not talking about being better than they are. I just know that at the impressionable age that a youngster is, and all you young people are impressionable. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are. It hasn't taken a whole lot to get you to do some things you shouldn't do. It hadn't taken much influence for the devil to get you to say some things you shouldn't say, drink stuff you shouldn't drink, go to parties you shouldn't be going to, things you should be separated from. It hadn't taken much of an influence to get people lure them back into that. And I know that. Kids are impressionable. It's not like they're focused so much now as they will be when they're older, but they have to be guided through these years. And I said, no, you can't do that because they will corrupt you. I felt bad about it. This child only passes through this age one time. This is one opportunity. All this is about sports. All of this is about sports. And when the last shot is shot and the game is over and you graduate, they don't even remember your name next year. It's all about the entertainment of the world. We may not like that, but it's true. But I gave into it for a while. It somewhat turned out. But I know this, that you kids get to mingle, even in Christian schools, kids get to mingle with other kids. They don't talk about the Lord. They got text messages and ideas, and they go places, and they sneak around. They no different. And if you don't learn to make the right decisions, then that element of grace that you so badly need will not be there. And you mess up, and you mess up, you mess up for a long, long time. We don't want that. Because we know, we keep telling people, year after year after year, the devil wants to destroy you. He wants to mislead you. He wants to talk you out of your current convictions and your effort. I got to do better. He wants to talk you out of that. Come on, man. Say, hey, it ain't that bad. God's not that narrow. And he wants to talk you out of it. He wants to tell you that it's just church. It doesn't mean anything. And yet, this is the one single opportunity that you have, and probably the only one you have twice a week, to hear something. And he tries to take all the meaning of that out of your life. And it's fun, man. You're young. Let's go. Let's do. Or young parents. We know not to get in debt, but boy, it's so easy to do that and have things for the children. 
And here we are a few years later and several thousand dollars in debt and you don't have anything to show for it. And the devil's over in the background. Now that you got a bill, you can't pay going. <laughs> Boy, they hear, but it doesn't mean a thing to them. They were so easy. It was so easy to, for them to do that. Now they're getting tense because of this debt thing, and now they can't go where they wanted to go because they got all these bills, and now they're starting to fight and argue. Well, he's behind that too, and <laughs> he's just like, man, this was easy. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you don't separate yourself from stuff, you're inviting problems. Look at Israel. I mean, it's a classic example. You make a league with these people to be a part of them and them be a part of you, and, and you start accommodating them. You dress like them, and you talk like them, and you're cool like them. You're one of them. The church ain't never going to change that. Going to church will never change that. The change comes from a commitment that you make with your mouth because your heart wants it. That's what you got to do. Our story this morning about Joshua is designed to teach us something. There's something here we must see. Even a story that involves killing and everything that breathes, women and children, everybody. Because Israel were executioners. God's capital punishment was taking place, and Israel were the executioners. He said, these people are so vile that if you let any of them remain amongst you, they will corrupt you. What do we learn from all of this? We learned this, that God who knows more than all of us wants to warn us about the lurking enemy, about the dangers that come to people when they don't pay attention. If you're not sober, vigilant, circumspect, if you don't give the more earnest heed to things you've had, if you don't watch, if you don't pray, all of those warnings. How many times do you say take heed? Take heed, take heed, take heed. Beware. Watch out. Watch and pray. Be cautious. Be sober. It's over and over again. And in every case, it will involve, if you think about it, it will involve, to some degree, separation. Because the devil always uses something you must come away from. And if you come away from it, there's nothing he can use. You've got to make that decision. You've got to be steadfast enough to do it. And I want to give you two verses and we'll close. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5 is 2 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 5 first. This is what we learn. If you want his favor and his grace, you're going to have to separate yourself from things that God's going to judge and things that will defile you. Ephesians 5 and verse 3. This brings it pretty much down to the modern moment today. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, that might be movies. Couldn't uncleanness be a go with movies that we tolerate? Okay, okay. Or covetous, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which is not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, that's the guys chasing the girls, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, that's what he lives and worships, his money, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, has none, the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light. You walk like children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Do that. Look at this, verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Uh, that's enough said. That's what Paul wrote in Ephesians. And we can identify with that, at least in our past. I can. Some of it. But not anymore. You know why? Because if I do these things, I will not go to heaven. And God will judge these things. And I've given up my place. Now go to 2 Corinthians. Go back two books. 2 Corinthians 6 to this timeless passage, which we're all familiar with. Verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's pretty clear. And I'll tell you again, people still don't like that. They still don't like to hear that because some of their best friends are unbelievers. Well, it's a choice you make. We live by choices. I'm just giving you the right ones here to make. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what kind of communion does light have with darkness? And what concord or union has Jesus with the devil? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? An infidel is an unbeliever. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, and here's grace, I will dwell where? And what? Walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is where Exodus 33 was. It's kind of a reference. Come out, and this is what God will be in your life. Verse 17, wherefore? Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. That's a condition. And if you'll come out and be separate, I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. There will be a relationship, a connection, and divine grace will flow from God to you and make a difference with your life. It's a matter of choice. It is a matter of choice. The problem is the world. And John wrote, we're not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the devil. And Paul said, wherefore, come out from among all that stuff. It's hard to give it up, isn't it? It's hard to give up things that are nasty. Like a television set can introduce you to a lot of nasty stuff. Not as bad as the Internet. And there are people maybe in this room that are hooked, hooked. You can't get away from it. You cannot. You try, but you can't. There's this drawing to this element that is filthy. And you know it. I'm saying this this morning, not because God has judged anybody, but because we don't want anybody to be judged. But nobody can make this decision for you. You have to make that yourself. If the styles and clothes you're wearing are to appeal to the world and to the designers of this world and the latest fads and goofy, trashy look, 
I saw a girl the other day at the dedication gym the other night in the cheering section. There was this girl there with a pair of sweatpants on and one leg was pulled up to the knee and one was down and the waistband was curled down and she had dark blue underwear. Now I guarantee you, she's not a Christian or if she is, she barely has gotten in and doesn't know any better yet. I'm just telling you folks, if you can't discern that, you'll be like that. Something inherent as a Christian, there's a voice inside of you that says, thou shalt and do not do this and walk in the way where I should. Something has got to be living and abiding in you talking to you. And you've got to be separate. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, grant us the courage and the conviction to make these decisions that we have to make lest we be consumed by these things. Lest we talk ourselves into being okay when we're not. Lord, it's not my desire to be harsh and difficult, but to preach your word in such a way that it'll have a, an effect upon those who need to hear it. That it will purify us this engrafted word will be able to save us. Only you can see the hearts of everybody that's in this room right now. Nobody else can see them, but you can. You know the needs of every soul in this room. You know the decisions that are made, the plans that are laid, and only you can convict us and turn us back and turn us around. I ask you in Jesus' name to secure us to make us strong and steadfast and help us to be separate from all the people of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.